Welcome to the second uh, low limb quiz. This is a short one. Um, so just to add to an extra bit of quizzing. This is multi-choice. Just ten of them. Question one. The first muscle layer of the foot contains A. The flexor digitorum brevis. B. The flexor digitorum longus. C, the abductor haliosus. D, the adductor haliosus. Well, think about that for a second. The point of the question is really to recall in a structural way, although it's a bit artificial, I accept that, but to recall the structure of the soul. And we need to appreciate these layers even though they are a little artificially constructed. We know them because they compartmentalise the foot as well as the hand, where there is, as I've said many times, great homology. The first layer contains the flexor digitorum brevis, the abductor haliosus, and the abductor digiti minimi. Pretty easy to remember. Then the second layer contains the flexor digitorum longus, the flexor haliosus longus, and, of course, that unique muscle, the flexor accessorius and the lumbricals. The third layer consists of the flexor haliosus brevis, the adductor haliosus, a much deeper muscle, and the flexor digiti minimi. And then the fourth layer is, in the case of the foot, the tibialis posterior, the peroneus or fibularis longus, and the interossei, the three plantar and the four dorsals. So you can pick up what's correct and what's incorrect on that question, but it's a good way of reminding yourself how the foot is structured. Got it? This approach, I think, needs to be quite clear in your head so that you can rattle them off. Question two. The lateral longitudinal arch of the foot is comprised of A, mainly muscular elements, B, principally bony elements. C, the short plantar ligament. D, the long plantar ligament between the heads of the quadratus plantae. So again, this requires a little bit of thinking, a bit of knowledge of the structure of the arches of the foot and what cons constitutes the arches of the foot, what contributes to them. So just have a think about that for a second. Now, let's be clear here. The lateral longitudinal arch of the foot, which is a principal stance arch, has few bony or muscular components. It's mostly ligamentous. And so you can see what's wrong in the first two answers. And the lateral arch includes the plantar aponeurosis, but mainly the strong ligament that is between the calcaneum and the cuboid on the lateral aspect of the foot. Now, we call that the short plantar ligament to distinguish it, but really, as I've said in the podcast on this subject, it's really just a glorified calcaneo-cuboid interosseous ligament. It does have some slips, a bit like flying buttresses that bridge that deep groove at the back and the bottom of the cuboid, if you're looking at one now, which houses the peroneus or fibularis longus tendon. The other strengthening ligament there is also the long plantar ligament, which is covered 
by the two adjoining heads of the quadratus plantae, but which can be seen between them. Now, I, I do accept for those purists that the abductor digiti minimi, the flexor digiti minimi, and the lateral bit of the flexor digitorum longus, which is maintained a little bit by the tendon of the peroneus or fibularis longus, do contribute. But we're answering, I think, here the spirit of the question, so that C and D in this question are really the only correct answers here. Got it? It's a way of reviewing the, the, um, the arch of the foot. I'd suggest that perhaps you pause in the MCQs at each one and figure out if it's correct or wrong, and then why, not just as a guess of whether it's correct or wrong, but even if you know it, as to why it's important. And at the end of each MCQ, you could answer the question perhaps more fully as a short essay if you wanted. And that approach, I think, will certainly improve your reinforced knowledge. So question three. The calcaneus or calcaneus, A, ossifies at birth. B, is part of the subtalar joint. C, has a large medial and a small lateral tubercle. And D, gives origin to the adductor haliosus. Think about that for a second. As I say, I think it's best if you stop it at each answer and then think not only what's the answer, but why is the answer correct or wrong and or what do you know about the subject. Now, I think you should go over this bone, over the calcaneus. I've covered it in the podcast on the tarsus. Now, we know that A is wrong, ossifies at birth. Unlike the hand, the calcaneus is one of three tarsal bones already ossified at birth. And they include all the bigger tarsal bones, the calcaneus, the talus, and the cuboid. And the calcaneus begins at around about six months, the talus about a month later, and the cuboid at nine months, as we know, as a surrogate measure of fetal maturity. The calcaneus, of course, is part of the talocalcaneonavicular joint, the so-called subtalar joint, and that's the basis of the mid-tarsal foot amputation of Chopin. So B is correct. Um, when you look at the tubercles on the bone, you notice that the medial one is quite large and the lateral one is much smaller. So C is correct. The medial one, of course, gives origin to the abductor haliosus, the flexor digitorum brevis, and the abductor digiti minimi, representing all of the aspects of the first sole layer. In other words, the medial, middle, and lateral components of the first sole layer. Well, of course, as through both tubercles, it gives origin to the flexor accessorius, and the long plantar ligament, and the plantar aponeurosis. But it doesn't give origin to the adductor haliosus. That's quite different. It's got a metatarsal origin, and a transverse slip origin from the metatarsophalangeal capsules, or joint capsules. Question four. The buttock, A, is cutaneously innervated from L1 through to S4. B, has a vertical anterior axial line. C, 
shares subcostal nerve innervation, and D has reflected clunial nerves from the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. So here's a question where we need to know a bit about dermatomes. We need to know a little bit about the cutaneous element of a modified intercostal nerve like the subcostal nerve, and we need to know something about what clunial nerves are. So it's asking a bit about pre-existent knowledge. And this reminds us, I think, of the complexity of buttock innovation. And there's a podcast where part of that was devoted to this subject on the anatomy of the thigh, actually, is the podcast in the lower limb. You might like to re-listen to that one. Because of the extension of the lower limb bud, of course, the L2 to S2 dermatomes are missing. So obviously A is wrong. It's not cutaneously innervated right through from L1 to S4. It explains why there are L1 to L3 representatives in the buttock, and then the anal area is S234. There's such a rotation of the lower limb medially that the anterior axial line actually spirals around from the root of the penis across the front of the scrotum in the male towards the back of the thigh and calf. And that point is meant really to accentuate the fact that the limb rotates as it forms, forcing the extensor parts to be innervated by posterior neural divisions, most unlike the upper limb and the brachial plexus. Of course, the lower limb anterior axial line represents the fact that two discontinuous dermatomes have lined up accordingly. So that's not a particularly tricky question. It's a spiral anterior axial line because of the formation of the lower limb. And that's relevant, obviously, if you've got lumbar spine injury and you've got paresthesia, then it affects the limb in a particular way because the dermatomes don't line up. So it has clinical significance. Um, The cranial borrowing of the lower limb is, of course, greater than the upper limb, and it includes T12, L1 to L3. And, of course, buttock innovation may be thought of as dermatomes or as individual cutaneous nerves, and it's a little bit complicated. To answer that, C, of course, as I've said, that the subcostal nerve does make its way down to the buttock because like a modified intercostal nerve, its lateral cutaneous branch renders over the top end of the buttock. So as I've said, there's cranial borrowing from T12 to L1 to L3. That's important. And coming back to these colonial nerves, this is the difference between knowing what the dermatomes are, and you should get out a dermatome map and look at that, but also knowing the individual cutaneous nerves. Supposing, for example, someone has Roth syndrome, R-O-T-H apostrophe S, or Meralgia Parasthetica, as many of the physicians like to call that, that's an entrapment of the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh, then you've got to know specifically what its cutaneous distribution is, anterior and posterior. When we come to the buttock, the other way of looking at at the buttock is not only as therefore dermatomal nerves, but also in your mind do you understand the individual cutaneous nerves that make their way into the buttock. Now that area needs to be reviewed and revised. I've, I've included it in a podcast. 
But we go through it again briefly here. This is the sort of short answer question, short essay question. One is the posterior rami of the upper three lumbar nerves. That extends over the upper posterior part skin of the buttock. The posterior rami of all the sacral nerves, the upper three innervating the skin of the natal cleft, which is relevant for pilonidal sinus uh, surgery. The lower two along with a distinct coccygeal nerve that innervates that small but rather sensitive area of skin over the coccyx and right down to its tip. And those are the so-called middle clunial nerves. Clunial is just a word for buttock. Uh, thirdly, there's the subcostal nerves I've already just mentioned, and also the iliohypogastric nerve, L1, which is a modified intercostal nerve in its structure, modified intercostal pattern, certainly, and these have big lateral cutaneous branches. The lateral cutaneous branch of both of those nerves innervates the lateral aspect of the buttock skin high up and in front, but you can see how low those nerves go. So that's T12 and L1, the subcostal nerve, which has made its way out from the chest below the lateral arcuate ligament. We'll be considering that in the next few weeks when we start the thorax. And the iliohypogastric nerve through L1, which has run across the front of the quadratus lumborum. And these are all structures we're going to meet in the thoracic and abdominal wall podcasts. Now... Four, of course, of the lower part of the lateral buttock, there's a small representation of that lateral femoral cutaneous nerve that I just mentioned that comes from L2-3, but it's part of the lumbar plexus. There's per the perforating cutaneous nerve, which uh, basically does come in here. It's one of the six branches from the sacral plexus. It's usually S2-3, and it perforates the sacrotuberous ligament. It innervates the postero-inferior part of the buttock in that area where the two buttocks are just kind of losing contact if you're looking at the back of someone. And then there is finally the last one that we mentioned, the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve, what we used to call the posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh, and that covers the lower part of the back of the buttock, probably the largest swathe of it, and that's a reflected nerve. It's an unusual nerve of the sacral plexus since it's a composite makeup of the anterior and posterior divisions of S1, 2, 3. So it's usually described as the dorsal divisions of S1, 2 and the ventral divisions of S2, 3. That can vary a little bit, but the point is that there's a reflected nerve, if you like, like a recurrent nerve, uh, which runs over the bottom end of the buttock where that fold is, and that's the recurrent clunial nerve, which is what we were talking about in um, if, if we go right back to uh, D, which has reflected clunial nerves from the posterior femoral cutaneous nerve. That's correct. Um, think of also, if you can, what recurrent nerves do we know in the body? There aren't many of them. What is a recurrent nerve? And just have a look at that and decide what is a recurrent nerve and what recurrent nerves of the body you know. Perhaps we'll have the answer in the next podcast, but that's easy enough to look, after, uh, look up. Um, it's really worth going through this area, perhaps with a copy of one of Frank Netter's images or a dermatomal map. Try and understand that two things additionally here, the individual cutaneous nerves, although they're mixed nerves, and the branches of the sacral plexus. And I think that uh, perhaps I'll do a podcast on the lumbosacral plexus as an add-on, and that'll clarify this area. Question five. 
Gee, we're nearly halfway through. The fascia lata attaches A to the pubic crest, B splits around the tensor fasciae latae muscle, C separates off the perineum, D is continuous with the pectineus fascia. So, not particularly difficult one. The, the attachment of the fascia lata is, of course, of importance in perineal sepsis, such as fornia's gangrene. And it does separate the thigh and the buttock from the perineum, so C is correct. It runs to the inguinal ligament, so that A is obviously incorrect. It doesn't go to the pubic crest, it goes to the pubic tubicle, and uh, rather than the pubic crest. And it correctly splits around the tensor fasciae latae, so B is correct, and then backwards in that space to the gluteal line and tuberosity, splitting around the deep portion of the gluteus maximus. It also has an attachment to the bottom of the sacrotuberous ligament, so as I've said, it does separate off the perineum. And that's of relevance in deep-seated perineal sepsis, so that that doesn't spread into the thigh. And it is continuous with the pectineus fascia. And that's not just a random question, it's of technical importance in a Lockwood or low approach to repair femoral hernias, uh, where you're bringing down the um, inguinal ligament down to the pectineus fascia directly. Immediately this runs on to surround the adductor musculature and laterally to split in the formation of the saphenous opening. So that's what we need to revise or know about the fascia lata. Question six. The sartorius muscle A is the medial wall of the adductor canal. B inserts with the semitendinosus and the gracilis. C typically has dual innervation and D laterally rotates the hip. Well, we need to know a little something about the sartorius muscle here. And that is the roof of the adductor canal. It's not the medial wall of the adductor canal. So A is incorrect. B, it inserts with the semitendinosus and the gracilis. Strictly, the insertion on the medial tibia is in front of and above that of the gracilis and then the semitendinosus within the bursa anserina or the bursa of of the goose's foot, if you want to call it that. So it doesn't insert quite with semitendinosus and gracilis. Some people say, okay, that might be a correct answer, perhaps a little bit ambivalent, but um, more correctly that they insert in tandem into the medial tibia so that the sartorius is above the gracilis and above the semitendinosus within the bursa anserina. I take both true and false in that one. Uh, that sounds a bit obscure, but the, you understand, I'm sure, what I mean. These muscles represent, as I've said, guy ropes of lower limb formation and innovation, namely that the sartorius has its femoral nerve supply, the gracilis is innervated by the obturator nerve, and the semitendinosus is supplied by the sciatic nerve. And all of this is the embryology of the lower limb, point of the question that the compartments and components of the innominate bone are separated into ileal, pubic and ischial components with their individual compartmental nerves. So I'm just reinforcing all of this 
so that the structure of the lower limb makes sense. The sartorius typically does have a dual innovation at both ends, and that's really relevant if it's to be used as a rotation, or perhaps more correctly, a transposition muscle flap. The situation where this is of relevance might be the irradiated limb, say, for a squamous carcinoma, where there might have been an inguinal lymph node excision, an inguinal lymphadenectomy. And here there's quite a high risk of breakdown of the wound, and that would potentially lead to vascular exposure. You can have a similar situation in the head and neck, and there the sternocleidomastoid can be rotated over the top of the carotid uh, artery and or carotid arteries and the jugular vein. In this case, in the lower limb, the sartorius is merely detached from the anterior superiorlic spine and rotated and joined up to the bottom of the inguinal ligament to cover over the femoral artery and vein. And so that you don't have vascular exposure, even the wound broke down, the vessels are not exposed. So it's relevant in a transposition flap. The muscle, of course, is active in the tailor's position with one leg crossed over the other, hence the name. And so it is involved in lateral rotation of the hip and is also the longest muscle in the body just for interest. So each of these questions, they might sort of sound a bit simple or basic or whatever. They've all got a reason, and that's what I want people to think about what's right and not just what's right, but why it's right or what's wrong and why it's wrong. And what don't I know about this area? What should I know? What extra things should I know? And why should I care? Why is it important? So question seven, bursi around the hip. What do we know about bursi or a bursa around the hip? A, run between components of Bigelow's iliofemoral ligament. B, run under rectus femoris. C, are not located near the issue of tuberosity. And D, separate the hip capsule from the femoral artery. Well, what do we know about bursi? We need to know something about the hip bursi. So this would be the impetus to go and look at the subject of hip bursa or bursi. There's typically a large bursa that runs between the iliofemoral ligament, so-called Bigelow's ligament, where it's thinnest anteriorly and the more medially disposed pubofemoral ligament. Bursi that communicate with the main hip joint include those under the gluteus medius and the gluteus minimus. So they're running under the gluteal lines. If you look at a hip, the superior, middle and inferior. So we're above the reflected head of the rectus femoris there. There's usually a bursa that runs just at the back of the ischial tuberosity, so that's not a correct answer, number C. Uh, B, uh, by the way, is not correct either. A certainly is correct. So C, are not located near the ischial tuberosity. There's usually a bursa that runs just at the back of the ischial tuberosity. By the way, when a question is so framed, is not, or usually, it is. This bursa usually runs up to the upper part of the vastus lateralis and it splits off part of the iliotibial tract for a kind of gliding movement. It's sometimes called in some books the gluteofemoral bursa, but that's the one around the ischial tuberosity. The iliofemoral bursa does actually separate the hip capsule from the femoral artery, so that is correct. 
and more medially that job is taken over by the pectineus muscle and its fascia, or more correctly, intervening in front of the femoral vein. A not unimportant point, by the way, in femoral hernia repair, since the femoral vein is the only flexible border or boundary of the femoral canal. To remind, the gross bursa anatomy includes, therefore, the anterior or iliopsoas bursa, the lateral bursae, which are subgluteal, one around the greater trochanter, which is under the gluteus maximus, a more superficial gluteus maximus bursa, a deeper subgluteus maximus bursa, a subgluteus medius bursa, as I've already said, and a subgluteus minimus bursa, as we've noted, sometimes with separate other subgluteus minimus bursae. So it can be quite complicated there. And the one I mentioned, the gluteofemoral bursa, already mentioned around the ischial tuberosity. Postroinferally is a bursa that's around the obturator externus, the deep adductor muscle we often kind of forget about, as well as a bursa around the obturator internus, the so-called ischio-gluteal bursa. Uh, and that's also around the ischial tuberosity. Often one can separately appear also around the piriformis muscle. The obturator internus bursa actually separates off that tricipital tendon that includes the gemelli from the sciatic nerve. So these have some practical significance. I didn't actually cover these bursae in the podcast on the hip, so this may be new information for you in answering this tricky little question. Question number eight. The gracilis A originates from the superior pubic ramus. B is squeezed in origin between the adductor brevis and the adductor longus. C is often used in a composite flap. D is dominantly supplied directly from the medial aspect of the femoral artery. E is innervated by the anterior branch of the obturator nerve. It's a little tricky as well. It's important muscle. The muscle comes from a small area that is superficially on the inferior pubic ramus. And we care about this muscle deeply and its origins and nerve and blood supply because it's a common muscle to be used in filling in perineal defects and also in its use as a stimulated anal neosphincter. So the answer A is incorrect, it's not the superior pubic ramus, it's the inferior pubic ramus. B is correct, it is squeezed in origin between the adductor brevis and the adductor longus. Um, The muscle origin is alongside the origin of the adductor brevis muscle and below there's a small area which is the origin of the adductor longus. You need to look at a pubis or an innominate bone to confirm that. And I'm told by some that origins and insertions of muscles aren't important to remember, but that's another example where it does matter. A gracilloplasty is created understanding the vascular and neural supply, and it may be used pedicled usually, sometimes free, sometimes in a facial paralysis, that's pretty rare, or as a muscular flap commonly, or as a composite, so-called myocutaneous flap. So C is correct. Cadaveric studies have been performed on the gracilis blood supply and they show a certain constancy from the medial circumflex artery, about 60 centimetres or so from the pubic tubicle. A second supply can occur 
up to 30 centimetres lower down, and more distant arterial supply can come directly from the superficial femoral artery, but that's not usually dominant. So it's a bit of a tricky answer there is dominantly supplied directly from the medial aspect of the femoral artery. These lower arteries are important in supplying the middle part of muscle flap, so they cannot be ignored and should be preserved, but the dominant supply is really from the medial circumflex artery, usually not directly from the femoral artery. Again, it's another example where somebody could argue, well, I think that's, that's true, but the spirit of the answer is that it's false. But to understand more why it's false, the complexity of um, grassless arterial supply is more important. Equally, cadaveric studies have been performed here, and grassless is innovated in almost all cases, by the anterior branch of the obturator nerve, as one would expect. And as you might expect, the adductor brevis is innervated by both the anterior and the posterior divisions of the obturator nerve, because this runs in front and behind. It's, of course, the watershed muscle for this division. And for interest, the obturator externus is innervated by the posterior branch in only 60% of cases and by a direct branch of the main trunk in 10% with no innovation of the obturator externus by the obturator nerve in 30% of cases. So it's quite interesting. It's not just an anterior-posterior split. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But the adductor brevis is the muscle around which the obturator nerve splits. You may think of the obturator externus as being innovated by the posterior division, but it's not always the case. And so it's a little bit more complicated than that. Question 9. In the ossification of the foot, A, the calcaneus is the first to ossify prenatally. Well, we've heard that before. B, the talus and the cuboid ossify at birth. C, the metatarsals ossify after birth. D, the phalanges ossify before birth. Well, here this is about ossification, knowing something about the ossification of the tarsus. It's valuable if you're looking at a plain x-ray that you can know the age of a child the same as in the hand. You can know something that is to be expected or something that may be expected in delayed ossification. It can have a clinical significance. Now, the calcaneus, unlike the hand, is the first to ossify before birth and usually by six months or so. The talus ossifies at seven months and the cuboid at fetal maturity, so we know that. What about the rest of the answers? Think about those. The metatarsals ossify very early, at about nine weeks, and they're visible on an X-ray at birth. The phalanges ossify at around three to ten months, proximal to distal, so that's kind of the wrong way around if you think about it. The primary ossific centres that are not present at birth on an X-ray are the lateral cuneiform, which comes out at about the first year of life, the medial cuneiform at about the third year of life, and then together the intermediate cuneiform and the navicular around about the fourth year of life. So it's lateral to medial to intermediate, and then the navicular comes out with the intermediate. And these ossification centres are more typically delayed, they're a bit more minimised, they're a bit more dysplastic in those children who've got congenital talipes equinovarus, the so-called club foot, I don't like that term. But um, 
basically the point is to understand that, that if we know our ossification centres, it's got some clinical significance there. And there may even be in these children sometimes a bit, a bit of disordering of the ossification in the way I've described it. And there's some gender differences in the earliest ossification site or bone. And so we're coming up to question 10. Let's shift a little for the last question in this mini quiz. What, we spoke about bursi, what knee bursi do you know? Write some short notes on that. Don't just listen to the question, but take a piece of paper out and try and list them. Um, I think that uh, it's the intention to create some small paperbacks uh, for each of these anatomy units uh, so that we might have the paperback, a sort of vade mecum, like a carry-on pocketbook of the anatomy, the lower limb, the head and neck, the upper limb, the thorax, the abdomen, and so on. So we're looking at that as a prospect uh, for each of these anatomy units. And one of the things I want you to do is kind of create also simple drawings which will help you understand. So would you be able to draw the knee bursi? And if you can draw something, usually you can understand it as well. So think about that. Well, there are bursi around the patella, and then there are bursi that are elsewhere. The patella ones are the superficial and deep infrapatella bursi and the suprapatella bursi. Uh, those not close to the patella include the so-called pesans serenus, which we've just met before, the iliotibial bursa, the bursi around the tibial and fibular collateral ligaments, and the gastrocnemius semimembranosus bursa. Now, this is of relevance clinically because in knee bursitis, their so-called clergyman's knee, where the clergyman is genuflecting in prayer, that affects the infrapatella uh, bursa. And then there's the prepatella bursa, which is called housemaid's knee, where they're leaning on that area or kneeling on that area. Uh, as I've said, there's a superficial and a deep infrapatella bursitis. The superficial type we've discussed here, the deep variant, should be differentiated, I think, from osteochondritis of the tibial tuberosity, so-called Osgood-Schlatter's disease. By the way, what other forms of osteochondritis, or some books call them osteochondrosis, do you know? I won't go into it here, but I expect my students to know these things, these sorts of things. There's about 10 of them. Also, do you know some details of the Baker's cyst, the popliteal cyst, located between the gastrocnemius and the semimembranosus located between the medial femoral condyle and the semimembranosus tendon and the medial head of the gastrocnemius, which may or may not communicate with the knee joint. So those are the additional things to know about those. Okay, um, we're going to have a little hiatus uh, on the anatomy um, uh, podcasts for a couple of weeks before moving on to the anatomy of the thorax. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.